In case you guys don't know, Don was out in the streets and did some Taekwondo on a couple people. <laughs> they knocked him over, but I think you beat him up, right? <laughs> okay, Luke. We've been going through a lot of Luke, right? We're, out, we're all the way up at chapter 19. So if you guys have your Bibles or your phones, or you've, you've memorized it, you're just really godly. We are going to look at a story, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is a really famous story. So let me go ahead and read it. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went up on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one else has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king, who, and this is the first time Jesus is called king in the book of Luke. It's very significant. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, by the way, that was, you don't get it. He's telling the Pharisees, you know, stones, rocks right now are more spiritual than you. <laughs> and so... He's putting them in their place, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. Now, there's a way to end a worship service. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So when you look at this passage, you guys have all seen the story. Like in children's ministry, they got the palm branches and the cloaks and the donkey comes by. But what do you notice in what we've looked at? Anything jump out at you in this passage that we looked at? What caught your eye? What did you guys notice? Yeah. When the spring is poured out from heaven. Here, let me go to that one. On this one? No, the next one. That one. The one that said, You and your children with you. Oh, at the end, yeah. Yeah, to Jerusalem, the whole group. He's, he was giving a prophecy. Forty years later, the Romans invaded Jerusalem, decimated the whole city. 
And the, every detail that Jesus said came, was fulfilled 40 years later. So. Yeah, it's talking about within you, the city. Yeah, the city of Jerusalem. Yeah. So what else did you guys notice in this passage? Anything else jump out at you? Yeah. Every once in a while, Jesus just lets them know who's in control of the whole universe. You know what I mean? Whether it's a donkey, a fish, five loaves of bread. And so, yeah. Yeah, if they were going in for peace. Yeah. Yeah, it was. So what we're going to look at, a couple of quick things. It's the first verse says this, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to where? Say it out loud. You have to understand how significant that is. All the prophets said, that, hey, Israel, in the future, there's this king coming. He's not going to be sent by man. He's going to be sent by God. A lot of the verses actually describe him as if he is God. But when he comes, he's actually going to rule from a particular place, and that place is Jerusalem. And he would come. He's going to and, and the prophet said he's going to save Israel. He's going to destroy Israel's enemies. And he's going to restore the earth like the Garden of Eden all over the planet. And, and there are so many prophecies. One example is in Zechariah. Notice where in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Zion was another way of referring. Zion is the hill. Jerusalem is the city on the hill. They were used interchangeably everywhere. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of, there is Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, or just, and having salvation is he. But Zechariah continues. Zechariah, uh, three chapters later, says, And on that day I will seek to destroy all nations against Jerusalem. And then at two, two chapters later, he says, on that day, living waters will flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And the idea is these living waters will actually replenish, restore the environment of the planet. And then you go a couple of verses later, and it says that everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. And, and this is just examples out of Zechariah. I could do the same thing out of Isaiah, Ezekiel, lots of other prophets. And all the Jews knew these prophecies. So Jesus is coming up to Jerusalem, and it raises this question, who is he? Who's the person heading now into the capital city? Is he going to fulfill 
all these prophecies we just saw in Zechariah. Now, did his disciples recognize him? And how did they respond? How about the religious leaders? How did they respond? But it says, verse 28, let's read it again. And when he had said these things, he went up on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Then they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, isn't it interesting that Luke takes such a huge section describing how Jesus gets a donkey? Obviously, it's really important. When, when you're writing the Gospels and you've got 24 chapters and you're picking out of years of Jesus' life, everything included... It's very significant why it's included. The story itself is Luke's way of saying this is who Jesus is. This is the king going up to Jerusalem. So what does the story tell us? Jesus, his knowledge of the future was, listen to me carefully, was just as clear as his knowledge of the present and of the past. That's Luke's point. What did Jesus know beforehand, before it happened? This wasn't something he prearranged. It was something he knew beforehand. Prearranged like he secretly contact the owner. Hey, I got two guys coming. He knew the colt's location. He knew it would be tied up. He knew that no one had ever ridden it. He knew what exactly the owner would ask. He knew how his two disciples should answer so that the owner would release the colt. That's a lot of things to know that have not yet happened. Does that make sense? And when his disciples found the colt, Luke makes a point in verse 32 they found it just as he had told them. What is Luke's point? It happened exactly as Jesus foretold. It all came to pass. And then, that's the beginning of the story. At the end of the story, Jesus doesn't just know what's going to happen with the cult. He knows what's going to happen with the city of Jerusalem. And he gives these real detailed specific statements about a siege, about an invasion, about a destruction. And guess what? It happened exactly as he said 40 years later. A guy named Josephus, a Roman Jewish historian, describes in detail the invasion and destruction and siege of Jerusalem. So the question is this, who has perfect knowledge of the future and not just the present and the past. There, 
A human being with his limited mind does not know the future. And this isn't just guessing about events, looking at a trend and thinking, I think this will happen. This is perfect knowledge of details of the future. That we're talking about a, the mind of God, an omniscient mind, an all-knowing mind, as opposed to a human mind that is not omniscient but is limited. So what is the story about the cult pointing to? Jesus is God, not just man. He's one person with two natures, a fully divine nature and a fully human nature. Not one or the other, but both. In his divine nature, he's all-knowing. In his human nature, he has a limited human mind. And both of them are true at the exact same time. And they don't contradict each other. That's a whole other sermon, though. But there's a second thing that's going on. The story doesn't just show that Jesus is omniscient, which is an attribute of God, not the attribute of man. But there's something else going on. The untying of the cult and Jesus' writing on it was a fulfillment of ancient prophecies. I mean really ancient. Back to Genesis. You guys remember the guy named Jacob? He's the guy whose God name changed to Israel. And he had 12 sons. Those 12 sons ended up fathering the 12 tribes of Israel. And when he was prophesying to his sons, there was one son named Judah. And he looks at Judah and here's what he says in Genesis 49 verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. His until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience. Now listen to the prophecy of how many peoples? All. All peoples. Now look at verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. What is that about? The king, the Messiah, was going to come from the line of Judah. Guess who came through the line of Judah? David. Guess who came through that line later? Jesus. But the prophecy also says that the king will have a cult that is tied, ready to serve him. But he's not the only guy that prophesied about this story. Zechariah prophesied that the king, the Messiah, would come to Jerusalem riding on a colt. Zechariah 9.9, Behold, your king is coming to you righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Which the exact same two Hebrew words for this donkey are the identical words used in Genesis 49.11. And scholars say Zechariah's prophecy is building on Jacob's prophecy. But why is this all important? It said the king would come on a colt to show two things, justice and salvation. But here's what's going. Jesus fulfilled two prophecies, but when you read the New Testament, which are historical eyewitness documents, 
He fulfilled over 300 detailed, specific prophecies that were in the Hebrew scriptures way before Jesus was born. Do you understand what I'm saying? You people have tried to calculate the odds of one person fulfilling two prophecies with detail. Ten. Three hundred. The exponential odds are off the charts. But what is that? What is the point? What is Luke's point with the story of the cult? Jesus is not only all-knowing, he's all-sovereign. How do we know that? The events of history are shaped and controlled by him. How do we know that? He prophesied the details before they happened. Does that make sense to you guys? So Jesus' divinity is central to the story. At the end of, the, uh, at this, of this story that we read, Jesus prophesies about the coming judgment to Jerusalem. And he says, why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, that phrase, time of your visitation, that Greek phrase, is used all over the Greek Old Testament. 100% of the time, it means the coming of God. And they knew Jesus meant that. Now think about that. Who's coming to Jerusalem? Verse 41, when Jesus drew near and saw the city. Do you understand what he's saying? The coming of Jesus is the coming of God. So what, the, what Luke is doing is he's saying the story of the cult is showing his divine nature. But your nature is who you are, right? Not just his divine nature, though. Also his divine character. Nature is who you are. Character is how you act. Right? Verse 35, So they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Why was Jesus, somebody mentioned, why is Jesus riding on a donkey? What's the significance? Zacharias said the significance is it is a sign of humility. Somebody tell me, how would you define humility? How would you do it? What's humility? I know you have some ideas. Yeah, choosing to lower yourself instead of raise yourself up. How else would you define humility? Not thinking of yourself more highly or lowly than you ought to. Yeah, not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to, or even lowly. What's the opposite of humility? Pride. What's pride? Somebody tell me what's pride. 
What's pride? Yeah, thinking that you're some, uh, higher than you should be of someone else. Zacharias said, humble and mounted on a donkey. Do you see the connection? On a colt, the foal of a donkey. But it wasn't just an issue of humility. It was an issue of peace. Coming on a donkey was a sign that's the way the king would communicate. I'm coming peacefully not warlike. That Jesus was coming, the king was coming to bring peace and reconciliation instead of war and conquest. Riding on a colt for peace, even in Zechariah. Zechariah intentionally contrasts coming on a donkey versus coming on a war horse. Because kings would show up in war horses. And everyone's like, uh-oh, that's Putin in Ukraine. Warhorse. Humble and remounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the warhorse from Jerusalem. The contrast, you guys see it in Zechariah 9 9 to 10? Between the donkey and the warhorse? The warhorse is a picture of political, military might in the ancient world. One example, Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So by riding into Jerusalem on a colt, Jesus is coming in humility. But what does that mean for God? Is God all-knowing? Yes. All-powerful? Yes. All-sovereign? Yes. Think about it. You know everything. You have all the power that exists. You are in control of everything. But it's one thing to have all the power, listen to me, and use it. But another thing, have all the power and choose not to use it. Do you hear what I just said? Humility. That's real humility. When someone could use all of this influence, power, and might, and they choose not to. Jesus did not enter Jerusalem to conquer the Romans. He entered Jerusalem to be, let himself be conquered by the Romans. Do you hear that? That's humility. Jesus did not come into Jerusalem to kill his enemies. He came to die for his enemies. He could have come on a war horse. He even told them that. Matthew 26, 53 to 54. Do you not, do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Do you know how tough angels are? In Isaiah chapter 37, 38, one angel kills 185,000 Assyrians. It's no contest between a human being and an angel. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that must say it must happen this way? What way? Not with legions of angels, but with submission, humility. When G by riding on a colt, Jesus is saying, I'm coming to bring peace. 
Not political peace, not the peace that comes when you overthrow your enemies. A heavenly peace. What is he talking about? The peace of restored relationship with the Father. The peace between me and the Father. That's why, what did the disciples cry out? Sometimes they weren't as ignorant, as dumb as people think they were. Because they got it. They see Jesus on a donkey and they cried, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven? They even recognized the kind of peace that Jesus was bringing. Now, just like us, sometimes they had glimpses of truth and they would go backwards. Because in a little while, Peter's going to pick up a sword and cut off someone's ear. It took a while to learn stuff, right? Just like us, right? So while beholding Jesus' perfect divine nature and perfect divine character, how did the disciples respond? And how should we respond? Let me tell you something. What causes churches to truly worship or not? It's not how good the music is. Although by, David says, play skillfully. But I mean, I'm, I didn't say what causes them to sing or not sing. I didn't say what causes them to play music or not play music. I said, what causes a church to worship? To worship, to praise. It's related to your view of who he is. Period. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let's, how did they respond? And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice. Began to what? Say it out loud. Rejoice. And what? With what? For all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because they heard the word king. They didn't like it. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. By the way, there's a misunderstanding. Often, people, when people think of the triumph, they think all of Jerusalem comes out and is like rejoicing at Jesus. Only the disciples. The, Jesus' disciples, the crowd, not just the 12, the large gathering of disciples were worshiping. Because the very next verse, the whole, this Jesus says, the rest of the city has completely rejected me. Does that make sense? When Jesus rode up to Jerusalem, the people of the city did not receive him. Their eyes were blinded. God will give people what they want. He'll give them according to their works. They, they chose not to recognize Jesus, and he said, okay, I'll give you blindness. I'll give you what you want. They, they chose not to recognize him and instead to reject him. This is shown by the Pharisees who rebuke the disciples in verse 39 to 40 and the city that rejects Jesus in verse 41 to 44. But the disciples do respond. 
What did they do? What's the first thing they do? They spread their what? Their cloaks on the road. So often, the cloak in scripture and in ancient literature was a, was a symbol of who a person was, their identity. If I wanted you to take my job and to take uh, my calling, I might take my cloak and put it on you. Right? What does it mean to spread your cloak on the road? It was a symbolic act. I mean, they're not going to put their bodies under the donkey. That could hurt. But how would they say it? I'm going to put my cloak under the donkey. It's a way of saying, I'm putting myself under the king. I am submitting. Submitting to him. And this, and, and this, this was... This is a, a, a known practice in the ancient world. Look at the example in 2 Kings 9, 12 to 13. Thus, and so he spoke to me saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel to Jehu. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu is king. It, it was their way of saying we are now submitting to Jehu. Jezebel and Ahab were done with them. Jehu. Secondly, they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen because they saw miracles, not just good deeds. And they thought, oh, that's from God, not just man. And it said they began to what? Rejoice. Guess what? Zechariah prophesied of that rejoicing. Zechariah 9.9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. But what does rejoicing imply? What does joy really imply? I'm not talking about just laughing when you watch Saturday Night Live. That is not joy. I'm talking about joy. Joy implies deep satisfaction in the inner part of your being. You're, you're joyful, right? So why are they rejoicing? Because the guy on the donkey is the fulfillment of their deepest heart's desires. You will not find joy outside of a friendship with Jesus. You have, might have not lasting deep joy. People are going to let you down. Romantic comedies where they end, and it's like, oh my gosh, this person in Italy is the fulfillment of everything I've ever wanted. And then the movie ends, and it doesn't tell you how they fight later and disappoint each other. Do you understand what I'm saying? But they didn't just rejoice greatly. It says they praised God with a what? What does it say? And Zechariah also prophesied that. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why raise your voice? Why shout? Why not just be contemplative and quiet? Passion. Anybody be able to go to a football game? Are they just all, why are they yelling in a football game? 
they're not communicating information. What are they communicating then? Excitement, passion. Anyone going to go to a rock concert? I used to go to heavy metal concerts in high school. I saw Striper, <laughs> Warrant, you guys, all kinds of cool bands with hair. <laughs> People would just scream. What on earth are they communicating? Passion. Now, you go to my office where there's cubicles and people are not, people are talking in a normal tone of voice. Why? At my office, you're not communicating passion on Monday at 10 o'clock. You're communicating information. Passion with a loud voice. Praise is central in Luke. If Jesus is who he says he is, if God is who he says he is, then what response is he worthy of? Oh, you're just awesome, God, really. Do you understand what I'm saying? What response is he worthy of? Look at Luke. Luke 2.13, and suddenly there was with angels a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Luke 2.20, and the shepherds returned glorifying and what? Praising God for all that heard and seen as it had been told them. Luke 18.43, and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. Acts 2, 46, 47, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. What? Praising God and having favor with all the people. Praising. I'm telling you. If he is who he says he is, then the only thing he's worthy of is just praise. Constant praise, right? Now, not only did they lay their cloaks down, not only did they praise with a loud voice, but they said something. And what did they say? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, you have to, when you have a whole group without a, without a worship leader and a microphone, how did they all know what words to use at that moment? Think about it. Where did they get the words from? The first line, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, is from the Psalms. Psalm 118, verse 26 where that psalm says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the psalm was sung when the Davidic king would come up to Jerusalem as a pilgrim heading into the temple, right? In other nations, kings would go to their thrones. In Israel, the king was supposed to go to before God's throne. Does that make sense? But they recognized that there's a scripture for this moment, and they started singing it. But they didn't just sing that. 
They also said, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Where did they get that from? The second line is not from the scriptures. The second line is really from the angelic song, when they, the worship song that the shepherds heard. You think those shepherds kept it quiet? You don't think that the shepherds said, we heard a worship song from angels, and it was started to be repeated over the months and years. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts. There it is, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. Well, that's what this says. Glory in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, the angel said on earth peace, but they kind of changed it. They said peace in heaven, right? The angel song was peace on earth. The disciple song is peace in heaven. But if you put them together, Jesus is the only being in the universe that can bring, that can bring the peace from both realms. So what do you learn just from this, just from their worship song? We learn how to praise. What language do you use to praise God? If you're only, if you're only using, if you're only telling God what you feel about him, that's not bad. But remember, what's going to, what will cause us to praise and worship or not praise and worship? Our view of what? Him. Where do you learn about him? Where does the knowledge of God come from? Scripture. We have to sing scripture. Now, I'm not a worship leader. I don't know. I, I'm really not any of that. But I do know that there, there has to be a point where it's not just Hillsong and Bethel worship songs. Those are good. There is a place in the church for literally singing scripture word for word. We don't do it at all in the Western world, in the church, except in certain Orthodox denominations, some Catholic denominations. You understand what I'm saying? It is important, though, and we'll look at that in a minute. How do we get from not doing it all to having it as part of our worship? I don't know, but it's got to happen. But it's also, but they didn't just sing a verse from Scripture. There was a song the angels gave the shepherds, a song that was given in their generation from a worship leader of their generation. Does that make sense? So I want to jump forward from Luke to Paul for a moment. And Paul said this, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. We know what these words refer to. What are psalms? Songs from what? Scripture. We know that's what Paul meant. Psalms are songs from Scripture. It's literally singing Scripture. What are hymns? Hymns 
are songs from the church. That is our Bethel and our Hillsong and Elevation Worship. That is, those are hymns. Right? And both of those were in the triumphal entry worship time. And Paul says something. Everyone say, to the Lord. Singing and making melody in your hearts. What? To the Lord. Louder. To the Lord. No, what is it? To the Lord. Worship is not about us. Man, that was an awesome worship time. I felt so good. No, that was, you felt good. The music was cool. You know what I'm saying? Worship has nothing to do about you. You are not being worshipped. It is, is he worthy of praise and worship just because of who he is? Everybody say, to the Lord. John Wimber. One of the revolutionary things of the first vineyard, John's church, was they realized something, that churches in that era had a bunch of songs about God. And they started writing songs not about God, but to God. It was revolutionary. That was not the norm in, the, in those days. One last thing, and I want to finish with this. Psalms, hymns, and what? Spiritual songs. Now, spiritual songs are not found in the book of Luke. They're in Acts and beyond. Psalms are songs from Scripture. Hymns are songs from the church. What are spiritual songs? Pneumatikos in Greek. Songs from the Spirit. Spiritual songs, and notice what Paul says, are also to be sung corporately, not just individually. Speaking to one another in spiritual songs. Now, you might say, that's, what does that mean? We don't recognize how they would worship in the ancient world. They would do antiphonal. Have you guys ever heard that before? If you read, many of the psalms are antiphonal. This group sings and this group responds. This group sings and this group responds. Sometimes three groups. The Song of Solomon is an antiphonal with three groups. But because we don't do that, when Paul says speaking to one another in spiritual songs, they're like, what is he talking about? It made perfect sense to them. Because they would do responsive, antiphonal. I'm not saying we need to do that. But I'm saying is, is that's what he's talking about. The idea, though, it was still together corporately. What are spiritual songs? Paul does mention spiritual songs in another passage in Corinthians. And it's singing in spiritual languages, in tongues, not in the language in English we understand. Unless there was a, a YWAM, a youth with a mission team in Nepal, they were in a village, and when they prayed for some new converts, the Holy Spirit filled these new Nepali converts. And they began to speak in tongues in American-accented English. I knew the people that were there. 
These Nepalis did not know English. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 14, 14 to 15. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I don't know what I'm saying. So what am I to do? I'll do both. I will pray with my spirit and, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing what? Sing what? Sing what? Praise. Sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Spiritual songs. And you find them. There's another example in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit, a bunch of Gentiles, non-Jews, the Holy Spirit fills them. They break into a worship service, praising God with the gift of tongues as a group. For they heard them. Who's the they? The Jews heard them speaking in tongues and what? Praising God. Them, plural. Why why sing in this spirit-initiated language that your mind doesn't understand? Let me tell you this. Is God beyond your ability to comprehend fully? Yes or no? Yes or no? The The things that he designed, we hardly understand. You have to understand, we truly barely understand the brain. I'm telling you, we barely understand the brain. We're still trying to figure out what DNA really is. Do you understand that? We know what it looks like. We can watch it function. But what really is it? Gravity. The strong and weak nuclear force within an atom. What I'm saying is, is God beyond your ability to fully comprehend? Yes. So what God has Your human language is inadequate. It is inadequate. So what God has done is given us spiritual languages or tongues. It allows us to participate in praising God in the parts that are indescribable, incomprehensible. And that's exactly what Paul says. His activity, his beauty, his wonder. Paul Paul says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him. But he utters what? Unknowable things. Mysteries. In the spirit. In Acts 2, the disciples are filled with the Spirit and speak in tongues. Did they know what they were saying? The disciples. No! They were fishermen from Galilee. They weren't linguists. 
Did they know what they were saying? No. To them, it was unintelligible. The people hearing, in this case, did they understand it? That's what was amazing. They're like, oh my gosh, that guy's speaking in perfect Egyptian. How is he speaking in perfect Egyptian? What? You know what I'm saying? But the people hearing tell us what they were hearing. We hear them declaring the what? The wonders of God in our own tongues. The wonders of God. I want to finish with, a, and, and with tongues, it's, you cannot, Paul clearly talks about corporate praise services with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And Paul says spiritual songs are the ones you don't understand. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about giving messages to people, instructing people. And he says, if you stand up there and talk in tongues, they're going to be like, we have no idea what you're saying. That makes no sense. He says, don't do that unless there's an interpretation, right? The context is messages to people. But I'm not talking, I'm talking about worship and praise to God. There is a place corporately for doing that in the spirit. That's a whole, that's more teaching than we have time for. I had a dream on May 7, on March 11, 2003. The dream for me, I'll tell you, every few years I have a dream and the dream takes place. I either have John Wimber in my dream. I'm not saying he's back from the dead. I'm saying he represents something in my dream. Or... I'm in the Anaheim Vineyard building or in Canyon High School, the gymnasium. And in these dreams, what God has spoken to me over the years is these are the things that are part of your inheritance as being in the vineyard movement. I've got about 30 of these dreams. One of them I had in 2003. And Jamie, you're always in them too. I have no idea why. Ask, we'll ask God when we get to heaven. Why is Jamie in all my vineyard dreams? I wrote this to Lance. Here's why. I had it in March. I didn't tell a human soul. And then Lance showed up one day at the stage. You guys know Lance Pitluck, old pastor. He showed up at the stage and he said, God spoke to me a prophetic word for the church is as I'm going to fill my house with prayer. And I'm like, oh, that's, my dream might be helpful. And so that, then I sent him my dream. I felt like God, God was saying the speaking the same thing. Not just to me and Lance, he was actually saying the same that season in 2003 to a lot of people in the church. Hello, I'm just going to read it. Last Sunday, I was really stirred by your message. I wrote that this is literally the letter I sent to him on filling the church with prayer. Recently, I had two dreams about the church, what I wanted to share with you. The first was about prayer and the second about repentance. I won't share you the second dream. It'll make you all feel convicted. 
and then you'll be telling us all your sins, and we just don't want to do that this morning. The first dream happened at about 4 a.m. on March 11th. It began with my dad and I entering a warehouse, which I knew was the Vineyard Anaheim. We decided to set up a conference entitled Corporately Praying and Singing in the Spirit. In the dream, we had a banner. You know the lobby? The banner was hung across the lobby, and the words were corporately praying and singing in the Spirit. Then we told Jamie Gillentine about the conference and invited him to speak. Afterwards, we also invited Thomas Dubay to speak. Later on in the dream, my dad and I got into an argument, and for a while, I walked away from him. At the end of the dream, Thomas Dubay showed up, and we were both surprised and delighted. When I awoke from the dream, I was thinking about Thomas Dubay's book, which was called A Fire Within. Regarding the dream, over two years ago, I once heard a Bible teacher mention Thomas Dubay and his book, Fire Within. He spent about one or two minutes recommending the book to the audience. Since then, I have no recollection of ever thinking about Thomas Dubay or his writings. That is not until this dream. After the dream, this is what I'm telling Lance, I went on christianbooks.com and here's the synopsis of the book. Father Thomas Dubay spends several months every year giving conferences and retreats to religious, particularly to contemplative Carmelites. This book is the fruit of many years of his study and experience in spiritual direction and in it, he synthesizes teachings on prayer of the two great doctors of the church on prayer, St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila, and the teaching of sacred scripture. Now, in church history, there's a lot of stories where you're like, ah, it probably didn't happen. They're just making it up. I mean, for real. St. Francis, they say he was on a hill, and he sees a cherubim angel crucified on a cross. It's like, no, that didn't, you didn't see that. There are no angels being crucified on crosses. It just that's, it didn't happen. You know, he was just probably fasting too much and stuff. But St. Teresa, multiple, multiple accounts that she would be so filled with the Holy Spirit that she would literally be caught up into the air. And some of the other nuns would try to hold her down. You might say, well, that sounds crazy. Well, one example, Philip, is in the book of Acts. He's caught up. Where'd he go? Oh, he lands some other, other place. It's, it's only crazy if you don't believe that the Holy Spirit just, that, that the miraculous overcomes the laws of nature, Right? This is not for contemplatives alone. It is meant for every Christian. It is based on the gospel imperative of personal prayer and the call to holiness. Also, in this dream, I believe there is a warning from the Lord. I believe that my walking away from my father symbolized the younger generation walking away from the teachings and traditions of their spiritual fathers. The warning is for the young people not to ignore nor neglect the path that their spiritual fathers have paved, particularly in regards to prayer. 
in the early days of the vineyard at the, when we met at Canyon High School, my friend Eddie Serta and I would never go to youth group because we wanted to be in the sanctuary during worship. Why? Every Sunday morning, as Carl Tuttle, Eddie Espinosa, John's on the keyboard as they're worshiping, every Sunday morning, they would typically, they typically, they'd often do five minutes where the entire congregation would sing in the spirit, along with other worship songs and songs from scripture. Why did I like that? One is, I, I just found myself falling in love with Jesus every Sunday. That tells you that you're worshiping and not just singing. Also, we, people would get delivered from demons or physical healings would happening with not a ministry team praying for them, not during a special prayer time, just in the midst of worship. The congregation was drawing near to God and demons didn't like it and sickness didn't like it. And I thought that was cool. They used to record their worship times, I guess there were no licenses back then, on cassette tapes. I would play them in my radio, in my ghetto blaster. Sometimes for 10 minutes, all you would hear is singing in the spirit. I can't tell you hundreds of times, just listening to the tapes, whatever I was doing, I would start weeping. For me, weeping is, okay, I'm not just hearing, I am connecting with God. Right? Roger, you want to come on up? Any thoughts about what we, we talked, we just looking at the disciples and the worship and the praise and the cult. And then we did a little bit with Paul, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I'm stirring us up. How did, you, how did the vineyard movement start? John used to say, we sat in a living room and sang love songs to Jesus. Everything else was a byproduct. Right? Any thoughts before, in a minute we're going to do something, with them, but any, th any thoughts or did anything jump out at you before we, before we have a time of ministry? What struck you this morning? <laughs> I love that. Wrecked. <laughs> there are, in the Psalms, the congregation would literally be issued in the, in the Hebrew imperatives, commands. Sometimes the psalmist would tell the whole congregation, shout to the Lord. Other times, literally, be silent before God. Other times, kneel. Other times, stand. Other times, lift your hands. You would be shocked how in Hebrew these were commands. What the psalmist doing was directing the congregation to move together in their worship as one, as one person before the Lord. But you're right, Bruce. Sometimes it's, it, it's like in a relationship. Sometimes there are times to just shout and be overjoyed, and other times you just have no words. You're just quiet. I love it. I live with myself all week. I'm not that impressed. When it's time for worship, there's, it's, it's, there's, it's wonderful to not look at yourself and to look at him. Right? We have to live with ourselves all week. 
we need to learn to just incorporate praise and worship of him. Of him. 